Good afternoon. It's a pleasure for me to welcome you to this third and final of three public lectures in the Charles E. Test, MD, Distinguished Visiting Scholar Seminar Series for the academic year 2003-2004. My name is Shauna Segru, and I'm the Associate Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which is hosting this event. Founded in 2001, the Charles E. Test MD Distinguished Visiting Scholar Seminars brings to Princeton a scholar who exemplifies the highest possible standards of excellence in the humanities and social sciences to enrich understanding of American ideals and institutions. There are few scholars who can live up to the aspirations of this public seminar series more completely than Professor Elizabeth Fox Genovese. Elizabeth Fox Genovese is the Eleanor Raoul Professor of the Humanities and Professor of History at Emory University, where she was also the founding director of the Institute for Women's Studies. A celebrated author, historian, and scholar of women's issues, her most recent publications include Women and the Future of the Family, published in 2000, Reconstructing History, The Emergence of a Historical Society, co-edited with Elizabeth Lash Quinn, published in 1999. Feminism is Not the Story of My Life, published in 1996. Uh, Feminism Without Illusions, published in 1991. And Within the Plantation Household, Black and White Women of the Old South, published in 1988. Dr. Fox Genovese, also gives of herself generously to numerous scholarly associations. She serves on the G.T. Chesterton Institute Advisory Board, the Board of Governors of the Historical Society, the Institute for Faith and Reason Advisory Board, and the Center for Religion and Democracy Advisory Board. She is also chair of the Madison Programs Council on Moral and Political Thought, which consists of scholars in the humanities and social sciences who advance civics in higher education. And in recognition of her outstanding scholarly contributions, Professor Fox Genovese was recently awarded the 2003 National Humanities Medal. Today, in her last of three public lectures about the institution of marriage, she is speaking to us about marriage on trial. This provocative title is both figuratively and literally true at this time, and we are grateful to Professor Fox Genovese that she has chosen to speak with us about this defining topic of our age. Please join me in extending a very warm welcome to Professor Elizabeth Fox Genovese. I think I'm now properly wired. Thank you, Dr. Sagru. It has been a, a great pleasure to be here with all of you and a great pleasure this afternoon to see so many friendly and familiar faces. On Tuesday, the 18th of November, 2003, in Goodridge versus the Department of Public Health, the Massachusetts Supreme Court, by four to three, ruled that under the state's constitution, 
same-sex couples have the right to marry, or rather that denying them that right failed to meet, in the court's words, the rational basis for either due process or equal protection. In the words of the majority opinion, the benefits accessible only by way of a marriage license are enormous, touching nearly every aspect of life and death. The majority concluded that the right to such benefits means little if it does not include the right to marry the person of one's choice. The decision explicitly appealed to Canadian rather than American precedents, thereby following the trend set by the Supreme Court and celebrated by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the Lawrence versus Texas decision. The influence of Canadian law and policy on the decision is clear, but the language, and I think few have noticed this yet, also uncomfortably echoes that of Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania, in which the justices soberly announced the decisions about the meaning, in this instance, the value of life, were purely personal matters. As others, notably Robert George, have pointed out, the disturbing evocation of due process and equal protection run through all these decisions. In effect, the courts have usurped the authority of the political process, assuming sweeping authority to legislate by fiat how we should live our lives all in the name of our right to personal choice, which they celebrate as equal protection and due process. The language of individual choice or individual right has proven extraordinarily seductive, both as an invitation to do as one pleases with a clear conscience and as a deterrent against disapproving the choices of others, which are grouped under the preposterously euphemistic blanket of lifestyle choices. Lifestyle choices, it turns out, include every imaginable sexual practice, including the new addition, questioning, as well as those older preferences, which not so long ago were known by such judgmental and today inacceptable terms as incest, pedophilia, statutory rape, necrophilia, and bestiality. Some older ones, like fornication and sodomy, seem to have disappeared from our vocabulary entirely. Lifestyle choices also include the choice to abort or not to abort, to marry or not to marry, to bear a child within marriage or to bear one without marriage, outside of marriage, to cohabit or not to cohabit, and on ad infinitum. Logically, there is no reason for them not to add polygamy and polyandry, as has been pointed out. The notion of marriage as the union of one woman and one man has been dissolved in a flood of options, reduced to the status of one choice among many. 
And if the gravest and most sacred features of human existence are reduced to matters of style, why should we care which styles others may choose? No more than the new dress. We have reached a precipice over which many seem eager to plunge, some maliciously, others blindly. Having reduced the most intimate personal relations, including those that have been our most reliable social bonds, to styles, we have banished morality from serious public discourse. The insistence upon viewing the world, including all forms of social and personal relations, from a purely subjective perspective, has led us to embrace, as the court in Casey encouraged us to do, the comfortable position that the weightiest questions about the value of human life are matters of purely personal concern to be decided by each individual for his, for himself or herself. With moral norms for personal relations swept aside like accumulated dust balls and cobwebs, the grounds from which to oppose same-sex marriage have been eroding. In the previous two lectures, I offered a functional and evolutionary view of marriage as a social institution. And it would be easy to assume that my intention was to endorse its continued evolution. What could be more natural than to reason that, since marriage has constituted a primary social bond in different societies, it is only natural for marriage to continue to adapt to changing social, economic, and political conditions. If the changes in the larger social environment account for and justify changes in marriage, no era could be more promising than our own for massive change. And it is hard to believe that the proponents of same-sex marriage are not counting on precisely that logic to carry the day for their cause. The 20th century arguably witnessed as much change as all of previous history combined. It assuredly witnessed a more rapid rate of change than any previous epoch, doubtless most dramatically in technology, but no less portentously in social mores. Until recently, all of the most visible social changes have concerned women, whose accelerating access to the full status of individual has decisively undermined the bonds of marriage and the bonds between parents and children. Nothing could be further from my intention than to blame women for our current woes. Much in women's situation called out for address, notably their subordination to men and their exclusion from countless opportunities for independent participation in the public worlds of work and politics. But the justice of women's basic goals does not automatically justify the consequences that have ensued from the pursuit of them. No less important, women's campaign for greater individual rights and personal independence 
was almost always more symptom than cause of the great secular changes that were radically transforming the world, notably an economic and a sexual revolution. For example, women legitimately sought greater freedom within marriage, especially control of personal property or wages, the right to get credit in their own names, and sought greater opportunities as married women within society at large, especially the right to specific forms of work that had long been closed to married women. But it does not follow that the best solution to women's demands lay in easier access to divorce or even in greater freedom from pregnancy. Indisputably, easier access to divorce, artificial contraception, and the resultant radical restriction of pregnancies increased women's independence within marriage, their freedom to leave or avoid it, and their freedom to pursue careers in the public sphere. But these putative advances decisively weakened marriage in ways that might have been avoided. Easing marriage bonds seemed appealing to many men, some women, and in the long run, to employers who would come to benefit from the mobility of unencumbered employees. Especially after World War I, when women gained unprecedented social freedom and even the vote in several industrial nations, including Great Britain and the United States. The rapid increase in urbanization seemed to enhance the desirability of single individuals who could respond to new opportunities without the burdens of personal allegiances. The increase in urbanization also offered women growing opportunities to work and to live on their own. As feminists have been the first to point out, The opportunities for women during the interwar years left much to be desired, and improvement often had more to do with style than substance. But that reality made the apparent freedom of easier social mores and easier access to divorce all the more seductive to cynical employers as well as to many women themselves. For the rest of the 20th century, the temptation to blame marriage for many of women's disadvantages proved irresistible to many feminists, and no few women who did not initially identify with feminism found those arguments convincing. Campaigns for no-fault divorce, for example, passed in many states with little opposition, although a few, few astute social analysts women as well as men, called attention to the costs, especially for less affluent women and their children, who typically experienced a decisive drop in income following a divorce, while, of course, the man's income rose. But the real blow came with Roe v. Wade, which has since stood as the cornerstone of the liberationist agenda, the sine qua non. Independent of the heated and uniquely important debates about abortion, 
which increasingly have pitted the sexual freedom of the woman against the life of the child, Roe combined with the mounting impact of the pill to deliver the knockout punch to the notion that a man should be expected to marry a woman he impregnated. Not for nothing did Casey piously affirm that women had become accustomed to working to support themselves. The justices seemed determined officially to liberate men and the state from any lingering obligation to do so. Quite apart from the consequences for born and aborted children, the consequences for marriage, compounded by no-fault divorce, proved devastating. The marriage rate plummeted while the divorce rate continued to rise, dramatically so in states that granted no-fault divorce. Today, a mere 44% of American adults live in heterosexual marriage. The divorce rate continues to hover around 50%, and those who live to age 70 or older are likely to spend more of their lives single than married. In the view of Business Week, America has effectively become an unmarried country. Meanwhile, the disintegration of marriage is increasingly endowing it with unparented children. 33% of all children and close to 70% of African American children are now born to single mothers, many of them young, underemployed or unemployed, woefully educated, if at all, and uninsured. The cynical may find in these numbers a strong justification for abortion on demand, but those most likely to live the problem would probably differ. African Americans in particular are beginning to see the uncompromising defense of abortion at all costs and under any conditions as a not-so-covert form of genocide. By now, at least some will have noticed that I have studiously refrained from talking except in passing about the relation between marriage and children and the importance of responsible procreation as the major justification for marriage. I have also refrained from dwelling upon the charms of marital bliss, readily acknowledging that marriages are as likely to be unhappy as happy, to which I should add that even the happiest and most loving marriages invariably have bad moments. My husband would insist that's not true. Um, <laughs> and some may suffer months or even years of tension and unhappiness. Finally, I have frankly discussed the evolution of marriage and emphasized the ways in which it has fulfilled different social, economic, and political functions in different societies and in different epochs. Perhaps most significant, I have said virtually nothing about religious teaching on marriage. My remarks could easily be read as capitulation too, if not outright acquiescence in, a relativistic view of marriage. If it works, if it feels good, why not? 
If individual happiness is the measure of the good, then by what right do we oppose individuals having what they want? The short answer, as we are reminded every day, is that the desires of individuals conflict. Pray remember that Thomas More's utopia postulates as stern a government as the one that prevailed in Calvin's Geneva. As in the case of slave women who enjoyed freedom from the authority of a husband only to suffer the authority of the master, the illusion of freedom in one realm, more often than not, veils a more ominous authority in another. The greater social and sexual freedom enjoyed by college students today appears to result in more instances of acquaintance rape and even domestic violence than occurred when they were subject to more supervision and regulation. Colleges, I'm sure you all know, have studiously resisted reporting all of these events and have only recently been enjoined to do so, and my impression is the reporting remains a good deal less than complete. The unfortunate byproducts, and, and the murders aren't reported at all, the unfortunate byproducts of their students' increased freedom have included a veritable explosion of student life bureaucracies, which instead of imposing parietal rules of the bad old days, impose mandatory diversity training sessions and untold hours of indoctrination in acceptable attitudes and forms of behavior. Yet only the obtuse can fail to recognize that the diverse members of our society cannot possibly all have what they want at the same time, and in many cases cannot even have it sequentially. Since the incidence of divorce rose after World War I, the emphasis on individual desires has grown ever more insistent. The boom of the 1920s promoted an unreal atmosphere of limitless possibilities. But the stock market crash of 1929, followed by the long decade of the Great Depression and then four years of World War II, introduced a harsh dose of reality. The depression encouraged when it did not force the deferment of marriage for many young couples. And if the onset of war prompted many to marry and even to start childbearing, the real baby boom did not take hold until the war's close. The late 1940s and 1950s blossomed into what many now nostalgically view as a golden age of family life not least because the United States was also enjoying economic prosperity, unprecedented opportunities for home ownership, and a marked expansion in higher education, including for women. The 1960s brought a revolt against this purportedly idyllic prosperity. The civil rights movement led the way, but the student anti-war and women's movements followed in quick succession. As early as 1963, Betty Friedan had published the feminist mystique, detailing the woes of middle-class suburban women imprisoned in material comfort, a stifling marriage, 
and mind-numbing responsibilities to children. In retrospect, it is striking that the beginnings of social and economic security for American workers, including unprecedented possibilities for African Americans, coincided with the first explosion of restlessness and boredom for middle-class women. At the time, it often appeared that easier access to divorce was benefiting men rather than women, primarily because men could take up with a younger second wife, leaving the first with diminished financial resources, the responsibility for children, and little or no preparation for gainful, much less challenging, employment. One feminist novelist after another chronicled versions of this story, but tellingly, the vast majority of them represented it as positive. However much the woman lost, and whatever her initial fears and pain, she was represented as gaining a new lease on life, her first taste of freedom to become truly herself, and perhaps to discover a previously unimaginable happiness with a new marriage, a younger lover, or even another woman. Beyond the pages of fiction, and not always within them, Things did not automatically end so well, and in real life, they took a high toll on children. The escalating failure of marriage since the 1960s may fairly be told as a story of the betrayal of children. In the United States, in which divorce affects roughly half the children who are born into a marriage at all, it is often considered in poor taste to dwell on the negative impact on them. Divorcing parents are quick to reassure themselves that the children will be happier if the parents are happy than if the parents, than if they must live with parents who are constantly fighting. In most cases, they are wrong. Short of violence and abuse, children can tolerate a great deal of adult unhappiness and most strongly prefer to live with both biological parents, no matter what the parents' own preferences. Numerous studies have demonstrated the importance of the presence of a father in the life of a boy, and it now appears that the presence of a girl's biological father is the single most important influence on the healthy development of her early sexual experience. Judith S. Wallerstein, James Q. Wilson, Marianne Glendon, and others have argued that the cost of divorce for children may be prohibitively high. Following the children of divorce for 10 years, Wallerstein found, and I'm quoting, half they saw their father and mother get yet another divorce, half found that their parents stayed angry at one another, and half became worried under achieving self-deprecating and sometimes angry young men and women. Meanwhile, one-fourth experienced a sharp drop in standard of living, few were helped with college expenses, and most felt rejected by at least one of their parents. Thus, as James Q. Wilson concludes, although some children have done fine after divorce, most did not, and the problems persisted well into adulthood. The news about the harmful effects of divorce has not been welcome in all quarters. 
the very frequency of divorce has led some school counselors and social workers to discourage negative references to it lest they stigmatize the children of divorce. Sadly, the children, who are the most knowledgeable experts on the subject, are unlikely to find anything surprising in the claim that divorce is harmful to the children who experience it. More sadly yet, too many children understand that they were never the primary person of a marriage that was intended to further the happiness of adults. Many adults do nothing to correct this perception. And their preoccupation with their own happiness, whatever it may cost others, echoes the theme of obsessive love that dates back to Tristan and Isolde. My point is not to dismiss the importance of love as an incentive to, to marriage or an important element in its cohesion, much less the importance of love between man and wife. But I do suggest that however beautiful and valuable the initial impulse of romantic love, a marriage demands considerable sacrifice from both parties, and the arrival of children demands even greater sacrifices of both. Our society has betrayed and abandoned its children. Their sexualization alone would be enough to indict our culture for terminal decadence. It is pointless to attempt to hold individual parents accountable for the countless ways, including unspeakable violence, in which children express their despair and frustration, or on occasion simply their bad character. Bad parents assuredly exist, but even the best parents have difficulty in holding their own against the forces of the larger culture, which has little regard for the intrinsic human value of children, much less for their distinct needs. The disintegration of marriage bears a heavy responsibility for the devaluation of children, mainly because we have somehow managed to reverse the time-honored sensibility according to which children were the fruit, gift, and blessing of a marriage. Our culture is more likely to regard them either as a marriage as trophies to be paraded or its burdens and to reject them if they fail to meet expectations or prove too heavy to carry. And it does not help that the women's movement in its campaign to free women from primary responsibility for children has effectively demoted the care for children to work fit only for servants. Traditionally, many societies saw children as the main point of marriage, and King Henry VIII of England was not the only king or the only man to repudiate a wife who failed to bear him an heir. In his time and long thereafter, the presence of an heir, overwhelmingly assumed to be a male child, was intimately linked to the transmission of a special form of property. In Henry's case, a throne and a kingdom. In most cases, land. Thus, although the power of fathers over children might be formidable by today's standards, both fathers and heirs 
were also in some sense bound as trustees or stewards of an estate that had preceded and would outlast them. Not incidentally, previous societies were also very much concerned with the problem of reproduction in general. If male heirs seem paramount to some, the mere existence of surviving children was seen as essential to all, for the, their absence would threaten the society with decline and even extinction. Today, these concerns rarely carry much weight, and few people probably even think of them. Property has become increasingly difficult to transmit and almost always takes the form of mobile wealth rather than land, much less a kingdom or even an estate that has been in the family for generations. For these reasons and others, children have lost much of their practical value, and this declining practical value may help to explain some of the disregard they suffer. But not all. For the deeper value of children, confirmed by so many couples' frantic recourse to fertility treatments, is psychological and seems to reflect parents' desire to perpetuate themselves, even if only in a single child. The problems arise when the desire for children does not translate into the desire to spend time with them, shepherd their development, and place their needs before the demands of the external world. Anyone who has ever seen a child burst into tears when it has a working mother and she's at home and the telephone rings will understand how those demands weigh on children. There are many reasons for the declining importance of children in many people's view of their lives, and nowhere is that decline more apparent than in the couples who choose to forego children entirely because they do not want the interruption, bother, or expense. Sometimes, perhaps frequently, couples who decide not to have children simply do not feel themselves ready to shoulder the responsibility. They need parenting. They can't give it to anyone else. In other words, to borrow James Wilson's formulation, they are not sufficiently grown up to embrace adult responsibilities. I can foresee the howls of outrage. How dare I or Wilson or anyone judge other adults' maturity and sense of responsibility? Such judgments bear a disquieting resemblance to the moral judgments that have also been banished from our discourse. Yet when we consider the current plight of children in our society, moral questions insistently impose themselves. And those questions relate closely to the crisis in marriage, although not primarily in the ways you might expect. It is impossible to exaggerate our moral failures to children, but ultimately those failures are those of the society as much as those of the individual parents. We have indulged ourselves with a culture that puts the individual, me, 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 
first, at the expense of all competing obligations. Under these conditions, binding ties dissolve into matters of personal choice that may change without warning or concern for the consequences to others. The problem of whether adults do behave like grown-ups returns us to the problem of marriage. It would be easy, although not without provoking outraged dissent, to chronicle the innumerable and sometimes devastating woes of inflicted upon children, but the exercise would only take us further from the core problem of marriage. The intimate relation between marriage and children has historically been an article of faith, and the Catholic Church teaches that a valid, valid marriage must be open to children who must be welcomed, treasured, and raised in the Catholic faith, which can be translated into raised in a living tradition. But even the church does not say that the bearing of children constitutes the essence and primary purpose of marriage. Presumably, confusion arises because of the emphasis on openness to them, including the condemnation of artificial conception and abortion. Notwithstanding the overriding importance of responsible care for children who merit unconditional love, the essence of and primary justification for marriage lies elsewhere. Marriage is an intrinsic good because it bridges the difference between the sexes, uniting man and woman in one flesh. In the Catholic Church, marriage, like baptism and holy orders, is a sacrament that marks a sacred rite of passage, entry into a fundamental commitment that binds the individual to a larger purpose and community. And although marriage unites two distinct and morally responsible individuals, it is no more about the individuals than it is about their union into one, a marriage that unites and transcends their individual purposes and desires, which henceforth are to be fulfilled through and in consort with each other. One of the smartest of the many recent commentaries on the Goodrich decision and the future of gay marriage noted that ultimately same-sex marriage will prevail because these days, too many Americans in small towns as well as in big cities know one or more gay people and often gay couples. The more accustomed Americans become to knowing gay and lesbian couples, the more likely they will be to accept their right to enjoy the same opportunities for happiness as everyone else. In effect, although the author did not put it this way, the collapse of public moral standards and the vast expansion in the notion of individual rights are making it increasingly difficult to deny anyone's right to fulfill his or her desires, whatever they may be. In our revolt against the allegedly unjust and discriminatory authoritarianism of morality, we have lost any ground from which to draw moral lines. The demands for same-sex marriage flow logically from the moral tenor of our culture. 
and nothing in that culture arms us to resist them. Above all, having first acceded to the primacy of the individual over any semblance of a group, we are now capitulating to the non-negotiable demands of sexual desire. Nothing in this climate could be further from the dominant cultural sensibility than the idea that sexuality per se and pro se offers a woefully impoverished definition or measure of the individual. As our culture has loosened the bonds of sexual repression that allegedly thwarted the development and happiness of individuals, it has increasingly succumbed to the notion that no sexual desire can be denied. It's a little bit like the early years after people were reading Freud and were told about the expression of anger and assumed that the proper thing to do was go and act out your anger towards everyone, that that was the way to be psychologically healthy. Well, that, in fact, along with anger and sexuality, Freud also taught a great deal about sublimation. And there's nothing there that says that because we recognize these feelings, we have to act on them. We're supposed to be people, not puppets or automatons. If you couple this assumption to the notion that marriage exists only to serve the interests and the comfort of the individual, you are left with few weapons against the advance of same-sex marriage. In an ominous development, the largest corporations, according to Business Week, are beginning to understand and adjust to this trend. Some are now offering benefits to a variety of domestic units and in the process are effectively displacing marriage as a special relationship or union and appropriately decreasing the benefits they give to married couples. The consequences of this tendency, combined with our me-me-me cultural ethos, will soon end in the destruction of marriage. Oh, marriage will survive as one lifestyle choice among many, but as no more than that. And make no mistake, that form of survival will amount to destruction, which is precisely the goal of the activists who are fighting for the legalization of same-sex marriage. And here let me be perfectly clear that... um, there is a difference between the activists who are very well organized and have a phenomenal rhetoric at their command and the many people who many of us know who may be gay or lesbian and who may be doing a better job in raising a child than abusive, drug-addicted, or alcoholic couples are doing. Um, that simply isn't the point. And the, that point is not the goal of the activists who are pushing for same-sex marriage. It's very important to draw a distinction between the humanity that we experience in our daily lives and the larger political campaigns that are underway. 
Many Americans who come to see same-sex marriage as just another step in marriage's evolution will accept the public pronouncements that they are doing no more than supporting fairness by extending some valuable benefits to people of the same sex who happen to love each other and wish to live together without shame or stigma. What could be more innocuous? But for the hardcore activists, the real goal is the destruction of marriage as the union of a man and a woman. They aim to discredit all forms of authority, especially God and nature, that dare to tell people how to lead their lives. In the view of queer activists, desire, like love in Carmen's Habanera, knows no law, nor should any be imposed upon it. In the current climate, the appeal of their position is not hard to understand, especially since most of those who accept it do not begin to understand its implications. If anything, the defense of same-sex marriage looks like yet another logical step in the gradual increase in freedom for all members of our society. And since activists, the courts, and the media overwhelmingly encourage the deception, we may readily understand that many people may come to see same-sex marriage as another blow against outmoded and illegitimate forms of authority, a blow for freedom and equality. Buying into this view, however, they will remain blind to the ways in which they are playing into the hands of vast governmental and economic powers. The freedom for gays and lesbians to marry will decisively contribute to disaggregating all of the remaining social institutions that provide the foundations for any collective resistance against political and economic domination. Contrary to many prevailing views, marriage is not the seat of oppression, but the last best ground for resistance against it. In binding men and women into loving relations and shared purposes, marriage acknowledges the reality of our sexual difference, even as it works to bridge difference and lay a foundation for a vital and, yes, grown-up social life. Fox Genovese for that powerful criticism of a culture of desire. I know it may take us a, a moment to absorb uh, what she has said, but the floor is open for questions, and it is the tradition of the Madison program to open with questions from students. So if there are such questions, please, please feel free at this time to... Yes. Towards the end of your discussion, you said that you'd like to draw a distinction between the humanity of our daily lives, I think referring to sort of the nice gay couple, and the larger political movement. And in a class that I was in last year, the professor invited in a gay male couple to talk about their experience with adopting children and their sort of fight for their civil rights. 
they had a slideshow with all these images of a birthday party and swimming pool and all those things that make you feel really warm and fuzzy. Yeah. And anyone that says that they shouldn't raise those children just must be bigots. How do people, and how should we deal with the situation of the drug-addicted, abusive, heterosexual couple being juxtaposed to the loving homosexual couple? Wonderful question, and there is no one easy answer to it. Uh, In my judgment, an important first step would be enlightened social policies to take care of the children of the drug-addicted, abusive parents. Um, Ideally, in the best of all possible worlds, helping the parents as well as the children. I have long favored, believe it or not, single-sex inner-city boarding schools that allowed children to go home on the weekends but, but kept them in an institution with a good dose of tough love. Um, it, to set up the juxtaposition that it must be either or, And especially when you're dealing with, in in the case of gay men, um, they they tend to be wealthier than the population in general. So they're able to offer advantages that other poorer parents couldn't offer a child, right? Um, You've got an absolutely unfair comparison One way to look at it um, is from the perspective of the child, and people rarely talk about this, even the the psychologists who write about it. Um, A father and a mother, even with normal human weaknesses, give young children something absolutely unique. They give them a dual source of authority. You don't have one person or one kind of person who is the only source of both discipline and love. It's an argument that two parents are better than a single parent, even a very loving and good single parent. Um, It's similarly an argument against two parents of the same sex because there are different ways of being in the world that are more important than simply the many differences of personality. Finally, um, the, the baseline is really what we have in Catholicism. Um, you hate the sin and love the sinner. That in any given instance, you may find yourself in a situation in which people are, seem to be doing a good job in human terms and you don't have to be rude to them or cut them off. You might let them be foster parents. Um, I certainly think it's inhumane not to allow gay and lesbian couples to visit one another in the hospital. You know, there, there are a whole range of practical questions that come up. But that picture, which you described so well of the, the soft and fuzzy and cuddly against the dark and dingy and cruel, is a false dilemma, and we have to learn to refuse it and to say that's not what it's about. Are there other student questions? The floor is open. 
Yes. I'd like to pick up on the, the uh, question that was just raised for a moment here as a family and marriage counselor and an addiction counselor. I think there is the part of the falseness is the fact that homosexual couples are not drug addicted. That yes. is a false notion because yes. they're probably more prone to drug and alcohol addiction than heterosexuals are. I mean, it, yes. it, it's, it's, the statistics show that. So yes. that's one refusion of the false uh, notion that you that you brought up. And I, but I, my question has to do with um, uh, how how you refute this activist uh, rhetoric and why the <coughs> activists themselves have chosen the churches uh, to be able to prove their case. Does it have something to do with maybe if they prove their case within a denomination, uh, then they'll have some kind of moral uh, sanction for the, for the behavior? Could you address that issue? Yes, and again, a, a very good question, and I, I won't pretend to more than than an exploratory answer rather than the hard and fast one because um, they are deeply hostile to the churches, the Catholic Church in particular and Orthodox Jews and Orthodox Muslims don't even make the radar screen. They're smart enough not to, to attack their frontally so far. Um, we'll see what happens. But um, And the goal is to force the churches to comply to, with the secular um, rules. And I have heard feminist activists, many of them lesbian, but not all, um, uh, argue that um, if the Catholic Church does not conform to all the anti-patriarchal kind of Title IX, equal opportunity, et cetera, et cetera, of the public sphere, then um, it must lose its tax-exempt status. Now that the poor in this country would lose one of their most important sources of social service seems never to cross their radar screen, but they don't care much about the poor. And I say that, I mean, I, I think the elite movement pushes policies that are objectively unfriendly to poor people. and the, the we can get away with the idea that, that these sexual politics represent the left wing in the sense of socially compassionate in this country is arrant nonsense. It ought to be combated every step of the way because they're, it, they are against not merely the interests but the desires of most poor people for what they want to do with their lives. No, no. <laughs> yes, the gentleman with that. Uh, do you see any forces at work uh, to counteract this, uh, this integration marriage? I mean, have we reached an equilibrium or is it going to continue? I'm not. Um, I. The. I think it was Romain Roland who said, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. That um, I, despair is a sin in my church. And uh, I think the, the logic goes in, is going against us. But the positive signs are 
young people. 72% of American teenagers, according to the latest poll, now oppose abortion. Um, that is, would have been unimaginable as recently as five years ago. Um, and more and more are getting married. More young women are choosing to stay home with their children, even at some financial sacrifice. Now, these are, by and large, middle-class phenomena. Poor women and single mothers frequently do not have the choice to stay home. Working families where their real jobs do a, a pretty good job most of the time, and children are very smart. They do understand the difference between necessity and a career that has more to do with glamour and self-realization. Now, when the bread on the table is a reality, it seems to me, to, to children, and there's excellent evidence that the children of widowed single mothers do fine psychologically, where the children of divorced single mothers do not. And they're smart kids, are. You know, they, they know the score. Um, but I think it is very, very important to have a cultural counterattack on all fronts. And um, especially since I don't see immediate assistance from the forces of the economy. Let me yeah. ask you before to, to comment, if you would, on what other leading feminist scholars who tend to agree with you can put forth as a thesis, and that is that gay marriage is really a heterosexual issue, that it has much more to do with the sexual desires of heterosexuals and their unleashing than it does as a gay issue. Why don't you be able to comment on that and tie it into the, the idea of, uh, you know, are, are we really being, is this homophobic to focus on, on gay issues? Oh, is it, well, of course it would be billed as, as homophobic because every step of the way it's, um, I'm, I am not totally at a loss for words, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to be economical. The, the game of accusing opposition to any new form of liberation as bigoted has been going on for years, and to not to be the the purported victims set the terms of what is necessary in order to treat them with fairness, with love, with respect. In other words, um, the gay community has set the bar very high for what um, human decency and equality require of the rest of us. And it's fine for them to call us heterosexist, but if we are to say that there is an intrinsic good to heterosexual marriage, we are, in their view, being homophobic. Right? I don't know if that answers the question, but that's the way the logic goes, is that they define what is required so that tolerance is not up on the table. Um, loving acceptance is not on the table. 
you have to rework your lives so that our lives are identical in prestige and worth to yours. As you rightly pointed out, in the past, there was an authority structure. And whether the authority figures were moral or immoral, they still had their authority. As it breaks down, well, I don't think it will happen, but that morality can only come back when the people in authority show morality and good example, which I contend is not happening. And that is almost more of a focus than the followers. Yeah, oh, I think up, up to a point that is absolutely correct. I, I wouldn't underestimate the ability of followers to, to hold their leaders to a higher standard. But it's, it's hard. I didn't say higher. I said moral and good example. Yeah, well, that's what I mean yeah. by higher standard than they're currently I, I, practicing. I, I right. Yes. Um, but, but to a more, to, to set a good example, that does happen. In, I don't want to get too far off the track, but in a, a, a really most functioning cultures, there's a kind of dialogue between the rulers and um, the followers, and there's a certain contribution from the followers to what it, to set limits on what it's possible for the rulers to do. Uh, but yes, I do believe that that not just those in authority, uh, but the what we call the elite. And I was talking with some friends about this. In fact, with the Sagrus at lunch, the, the notion of class has disappeared entirely. And there used to be a notion of, for better or worse, that the bourgeoisie, the upper middle class, had a responsibility. That's where the big city museums come from. That's where all kinds of social programs come from. That's where contributions to the churches come from. And it's disappeared in this sea of money and celebrity, in a world in which Madonna passes as an elite. Um, you know you're in serious trouble. I mean, the, the, again, I'll come back to, to Freud in the most general sense, but the notion of internalization seems to have very short currency these days, right? That, that it, do as I do and not as I say. Everyone is do as I say, not as I do. Um, but we need people who will live with a degree of sobriety, and that means we've got to have lower salaries for our corporate executives, and we've got to have a little less conspicuous spending, and we've got to find other ways to rev up our economy than to have, a, I hope I'm offending no one, an excess of white Lexus and Mercedes SUVs, which strike me as the ultimate contradiction because status versus functional. Um, it, you know, it, yes, you're, you're right. We, we need a real revolution within, within the elite, but we need it to think of itself as responsible first and foremost. Seem to believe is the responsibility in part of these active 
liberal elite and media yeah. uh, to match and uh, explain the reason of the sex-crazed society that we now have that focuses every aspect of our lives, which used to be only one element of marriage, every aspect of our lives, our advertising, our product sales, everything is on sex now. Is this also part of the same story? Yeah, I think it's closely related to the same story, and I, I thank you for bringing out a, a point that I wasn't able to develop at greater length, because I do think the sex obsession of the society is potentially dangerous, and I don't even mean this from a prudish or moralistic point of view, but because it is addictive and obsessive, and because once you break taboos, the it it keeps accelerating, and that that you know you new experience leads you to want more new experience, and on and on and on. So that and um, we're beginning in these days very young. the The addiction of young boys to pornography on the internet should be of serious concern to all of us, as as like a gambling addiction or a drug addiction. And on the same. Um, they're participants in it. They they help to create a culture that thrives on it. They assuredly don't criticize it in any way, shape, or form. I'm aware of things on television that, frankly, I haven't watched, so I can't speak on them with authority. But I see enough trailers, teasers, you know, of or read in the papers of what's going on on various programs to know that um, we're getting things in what are supposed to be family comedies that make NYPD blue, which comes at the later hour, at 10 o'clock when the kids are in bed, look like real family television. <laughs> Okay, I mean, it, it just looks so mild compared to my sense of what's coming ahead of time. Yes, John, John oh, okay. Do you think that if uh, married couples were, I guess, doing a better job of sticking together, uh, that there would be this outcry for gay marriage? That is, it doesn't seem to me that homosexual couples are, in any degree, Monogamistically inclined. No. <laughs> so the, were were married couples doing a better job of you know not divorcing when they have kids and stuff like that? There would be this. It'd be a it'd be a huge help. I again something I didn't have time to say, but we hear all this talk of gay marriage. I have yet to hear anyone say anything about gay divorce. And given what we know about the rate of promiscuity, separation, and violence in those communities. Um, especially among the men. Uh, yes, I, I certainly think if people were taking marriage more seriously and recognize the possibility that um, you might not be having, your marriage might not include a passionate sexual affair for a period of time. It will in stretches and maybe not at every moment and especially maybe not at the points at which babies are getting you up in the middle of the night for feedings and things like that. No one's getting enough sleep, right? It, um, 
It make a big difference if marriage were seen as more positive, presented more positively, and understood as more permanent. And there were Louisiana has um, covenanted marriages, and the divorce rate of the couples who choose to have you have a choice of you know regular old get divorced when it suits you or the covenanted. The divorce rate of those who choose the covenant in marriage is, I think, 4%. Divorce rates of, I'll just quickly, of um, those who practice natural family planning, we don't have good statistics on this yet, but are well under 5%, as best anyone can tell, and maybe in the 1% or 2% range. Um, Divorce rates among graduates of VMI, when it was still single sex, were under 10%. Okay, so um, valuing marriage and a sense of tradition and reasons for sticking to it and, and thinking of the couple as us rather than one plus one. What I feel to be um, a more respect um, for marriage among my peers. And, I mean, Newsweek published um, an issue about a year ago called, I think, like the New Virginity, um, about more and more um, teenagers taking chastity vows. And just um, anecdotally among my friends here, I find more and more people are thinking about marriage and you know forming relationships now that will have make them have better marriages than talking to my parents um, and sort of what their peers were talking about when they were in, in college. What do you think has sort of caused this change? Or am I sort of imagining? No, no, no. You're not, I thought I at least hinted in an answer to an earlier question that your generation is our big hope. You're turning out to be perfectly wonderful in all kinds of ways. <laughs> Keep at it. Um, but there are many reasons for the change. Um, and I'll give you some thoughts and some examples. I was very much impressed that two summers ago, a group of young people from the West Coast uh, did a trek across the country, and they called themselves the survivors. They were the, of the generation born since Roe v. Wade. And instead of feeling chosen, they said that what they'd been was on sufferance, and they weren't going to do that to another generation of children. Okay? Um, I think that the, the bad marriages of parents and the anger of parents at one another frequently are not merely hurtful to children. They strike them as frenetic and past a certain point not about anything. And that the thoughtful young people are beginning to ask themselves, what is this about? Now, the, the greatest danger, it seems to me, for human beings, or one of the greatest dangers, is to get caught up obsessively needing things you don't really want, to lose touch with what, is, what makes you happy, what really satisfies you. And I think your generation is looking at a lot of people 
who got caught up in a lot of material stuff that doesn't add up to very much. And you're trying to say no. Is there a different way to do it? One of the most powerful uh, parts of your message, and one where you express yourself perhaps uh, more dramatically, is the effect that this, that uh, a lot of feminist ideology is having on children. You uh, say, you use the word betrayal of children, and you use other very, very strong language here. I know you've done some work on uh, the effect of uh, divorce on children, and this particular paragraph on page 8 seems to me an area that could be greatly expanded. In other words, I think that uh, the focus ought to be on the effect on children rather than whether uh, gays are happy uh, or can be happier if they could have a marriage. Uh, more importantly, for example, I am amazed by the almost canonization of the single mother and perhaps even the single mother who is a high school student. I mean, certainly she should get an education, but should we have this warm, fuzzy feeling sort of, isn't it wonderful, with the single mother who hasn't graduated from high school? Yes, look, you're absolutely right about the children. I use very strong language, and I believe it very deeply, not, not just emotionally, but, but intellectually. I think we're going down a road along, which is the road by which a society literally destroys itself. You know, people have believed in cyclical theories of history for a long time, my husband and I have just finished a book that deals with this in relation to the antebellum slaveholders. Um, great empires can, can collapse, and one of the signs of their collapse is moral decadence. And the neglect of children is about the highest on the list. I, Children have the right to be the most important thing in the world to someone. Children need a lot of ordinary time, not, not the exceptional time of sitting down for that heart-to-heart -heart conversation that's going to take in drug, sex, and your future all at once because you won't learn a thing from the child. What the child needs is a lot of time drying, the, well, you, we don't dry dishes anymore, but setting the table carpooling, whatever, so they don't have to look you in the face and you pick up what what they're talking to their peers about and gradually begin. So yes, there's no, we're, we're on the same page on that one, and I could go on at great length, and when I expand these for publication, I'll, I'll develop that side. I will nonetheless return to the, the, the core point, which is that the marriage is... Prior. It's not, you're right, gay marriage is secondary to what we're doing to our children. Uh, but our commitment to the marriage of a man and a woman as the foundational institution of a decent society 
is one we can't afford to lose. It's the love of the parents for one another that creates the climate for the children. This question was brought up in an earlier lecture. However, it seems at this point it should be fair to see brought up again. One of the conservative arguments for gay marriage, which has been getting a lot of airtime these days, namely that no matter what the ontological definition of marriage might be as between a man and a woman, it is simply not perceived as such by our culture thanks to divorce, the pill, abortion, what have you. So why don't we simply open it up to gays who, as John pointed out, don't necessarily have the proclivity towards monogamy, and re-enshrine the commitment of marriage sort of as a means by which to get homosexual commitment and heterosexual commitment and get at least part of what's the traditional definition of marriage. Now, personally, one of my many problems with this is there seems to be a certain legal causality that if we change the laws in X manner, the cultural will yield Y. But other than that, what sort of arguments can be made against that rather popular view this is? <laughs> well, um... First of all, you said conservative, but we know since the days of Reagan, it's a very big tent. And that can either be a libertarian argument, or it can be a very cynical neocon Republican argument that it's, it's good for business. You know, a certain wing, the liberal wing of the Republican Party, the ones who support abortion would probably be perfectly comfortable with gay marriage, because what difference does it make? As long as we can protect the way in which we want to, to live our lives, let others do as they please. And I'm dead serious about the value of disconnection for the global economy. I know I've mentioned before, the people who live with a cell phone always on and the three airline tickets in their pocket are the ideal of the big corporations. If you're, if you're going to be serious in finance, yes, you need to be up at three to watch the Tokyo markets. It's, um, so there's a, there's a kind of practical why not to it. That, um, but for people who are serious conservatives, which means with some measure of social compassion and some sense, if not faith themselves, the importance of religion in a healthy society, uh, to take that kind of laissez-faire attitude strikes me as cynical beyond belief, and it in effect says, well, if this is what's happening, we can't do anything about it, let's let it run its course. That, that's in effect capitulating to the ethos of me first and no responsibility to anyone else. So I think it's a bad argument. And I don't think it's going to make gay men any less promiscuous. We've mentioned a few times this evening the word happiness, and um, it just seems to me that we need to hear more about what happiness really means. We have to hear that from, from the married couples, we have to hear it from the clergy, we have to um, 
look at some of the classic writings on this, the old principles, even uh, certainly Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, uh, and take those old principles and put them in a new form that's persuasive, because that's what people really are looking for. Yes, and it's a lovely way to end. We also have to expand our understanding of where happiness lies and the many places in which we can find it. There's a wonderful line in St. Augustine, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in you. But the sense of, of happiness in relation to peace, the, the happiness in a job well done, the happiness in a meal cooked for people you love and shared with them, the, the joy in worship, um, the happiness in the love of two people for one another, of uh, that kind of wondrous smile on the face of, face of a child. And I am being serious here, not sentimental and not Hallmark card, that there are, there are forms of happiness to be found in the most unexpected places. And we have narrowed them way way, way down, and it is a tragedy. So thank you. Before I invite you to join me in uh, thanking Professor Elizabeth Fox Genovese for three wonderful uh, lectures in the Charles Test series, uh, I want to thank uh, our associate director, Dr. Shauna Segru, uh, for stepping in uh, when uh, I was late. Uh, I understand she did not get any of the messages uh, that I left, so she was flying uh, uh, on her own wits, and uh, I'm really grateful to her uh, for doing that. Uh, also, I have uh, the pleasure of announcing tonight uh, next year's Charles E. Test uh, Distinguished Visiting Scholar. And it will be Rabbi David Novak, who is Professor of Jewish Studies, Ship Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Toronto, one of the world's leading authorities uh, on Jewish law and political theory. Uh, we hear a great deal about the question of the role of religion in American public life. It's widely uh, debated, as you know. And very often that debate is, uh, that debate presupposes that it's a debate about Christianity in American public life. And I suppose that uh, we can make sense of that, given that the Christianity is the majority religion in our country and always has been. But uh, Professor Novak, Rabbi Novak, uh, has made many important contributions to this discussion from the Jewish perspective, and he will be with us to give three Charles E. Test lectures on the relevance of Jewish thought to contemporary issues uh, in ethics and political theory. And I'm absolutely delighted that he has accepted our invitation and will be here as a very worthy successor uh, to Professor Elizabeth Fox Genovese for the Charles E. Test lectures. Uh, now I hope that you will join us for a reception in uh, honor of Professor Fox Genovese just outside uh, the doors at the top here, and please join me in thanking her for a splendid set of lectures.